Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good evening, church. Uh, We have finally made it to chapter four in our journey through uh, Ephesians. I just want to give a quick plug, guys. Thank you so much for coming to the membership class this weekend. I saw several of you in my home. We spent a lot of time together, ate some good food, laughed and talked about membership in our church. And so members of the church, I look forward to in the coming weeks, introduce you to some new members and Simply membership for us is not like, here's the in club, here's the out club. Uh, Membership simply means family. And so we make decisions here as a family. I'm not some dictator or king over the church. Uh, Jesus is king as we sung about. And my job is to help facilitate the family would be my job as pastor. And so the family decides together, we vote together, we pray together, we care for each other together. And so we meet quarterly together to do that, but we also do more than just that. And so membership for us simply means family, and it lets us know who we are responsible to care for and how we make decisions together. So if you're still interested and miss a class, come talk to me afterwards and we'll get you connected with the next course. Well, guys, as we begin, uh, we're looking at Ephesians chapter four. We just trekked through three chapters and it was all about the grandness of God and how he blessed us in a relationship with him. And I was thinking about this passage of chapter four. It sort of moves us from doctrine to duty, from theology to application, from sort of the root of truth to the fruit of application. And today's all about the family, all about the family, the the family of the faith, the church together. And I was thinking about this and the illustration of the Brady Bunch came up. And I think it came up because we've been on Zoom so long. And this is what it felt like gathering with you guys on Zoom every Sunday. You remember those painful times on Zoom? It's like, oh, can you hear me? Oh, you're on mute. Like how many times did we all say that, right? I think I thought about this illustration because of how much time we spent on Zoom. But if you remember this uh, TV show, you might have not watched it. It was about when uh, Brandon was 15. It was in the 70s. Love you, buddy. Just kidding. Uh, it was a 70s sitcom, and it was about this story of a blended family. Now, keep in mind, that's sort of the background of the church of Ephesus. It's the blended family of different tribes and nations, right? Different people together, and they've become this one church, right? So the Brady Bunch is really about this guy named Mike Brady. He's a widowed architect, and he has three sons, right? Greg, Peter, and Bobby. And well, Mike meets this woman named Carol, and Carol has three daughters, right? Marsha, 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 right? Jan and Cindy, right? They end up getting married, and what do they all do? They unite under one name, under one roof, right? And even New England does this with the last name Brady too. They all unite under name name Tom Brady, just like this family, right? Now included in this new blended family, there's also like a live-in housekeeper, that's Alice Nelson, right? Their boy's dog is named Tiger and the girl's pet cat is Fluffy. I didn't have this all memorized, I had to look it up. But it's a really blended family, all different backgrounds. Now in the first season of this, you can see some really awkward adjustments in this new blended family, right? There's gender rivalries between the siblings. There's resentment issues. There's subcultural differences that the girls and the boys have. They have different preferences about how to do family. But if you watch the series long enough, you'll slowly watch something happen. You'll watch this family move from being disjointed individuals to a unified body. Disjointed individuals to a unified body. And that's what's happening in this church at Ephesus. 
Remember, you've got the Jews and the Gentiles. They're disjointed individuals, and now they're becoming a family together. And so Paul gives us this passage to begin the conversation of how a family is to live life with one another. And guys, this is perfect for a new church plant just like ours. How do we live out community groups and DNA? What happens if someone really irritates you in this church? Maybe he's your pastor. What do you do with these issues of family in the church? Do you bail on family? Do you give up? What are the sort of principles of this family? And that's what Paul has to give us here. Now, if you remember, right, the first chapter, the first three chapters, excuse me, of the book, Paul's really detailing the blessings that this family has, but they're not thinking as a family yet. They're thinking individually. So Paul spends three chapters telling them the blessings they have in God and how they got in a relationship with God. And then he moves from doctrine to duty, right? From root of theology to the fruit of application. And we really begin to see in this section how family operates. Now, if you're familiar with the book of uh, Ephesians, this is actually the turning point of the entire book, the turning point of the entire thing. And the passage that Chelsea just read for us is actually a summary statement that is unpacked for the rest of the book. It's all tucked in those six verses. And then chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six is all about unpacking what those little six verses mean for a local church, just like City on a Hill, Brighton. So we've traveled a long ways and guys, we have a long way, but this is sort of like the mile marker. This is sort of the gas station pit stop. We're about halfway through the book and we're pivoting towards lots of application for the church. Guys, even notice something. Um, The first three chapters, there was only one command that God gave to Paul to give to this church. One command out of three chapters. Do you guys remember what that command was? It's found in chapter two when, when God tells Paul to tell them to remember where they came from. And that's not even really an active command, right? And then from there on forward, there are 41 commands to do in light of what God has done for us. Do you see the importance of this? Paul spent the first three chapters telling you what Christ did for you. And then he spends the rest of the book telling you how are we to respond to what God did. So do you see that this is what the Christian faith is about? The gospel is not about what you do for God, what you can do for others to make you right before God. Christianity, the gospel is about what God did for you and how you live in light of it. And this book is a beautiful picture of how our faith is laid out. So as one theologian, John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, and I've been referencing his commentary a lot during this series, he says, no passage in scripture is more descriptive for the church in action than Ephesians chapter four. And that's why we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through slowly Ephesians 4. We're going to learn a lot about spiritual gifts in our church and who has what spiritual gift and what the purpose of these gifts are. We're going to unpack that. This whole chapter is really about the family, right? The family of faith that's gathered in here today. What's your spiritual gifts and how we're to live that out? How do we stay unified? How do we love one another? It's all about the family of faith. So with that said, sort of as our background, let's jump into verse 1 of this chapter. Uh, Paul starts this in sort of like an autobiographical moment about his own life. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that's an interesting way for Paul to start out to talk to the family, right? Why does he pull the prisoner card, 
if you would. Why does Paul start by mentioning that he's in prison? Is he trying to make them feel guilty about where they are versus where he is? What's his purpose of saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to do something? What's interesting, I think the reason is because he's trying to prove how costly yet how worth it it is when we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul's passion and his conviction for a unified and missional church is the thing that actually led him to persecution and actually brought him to his imprisonment. And so therefore, when Paul says, hey, I'm a prisoner, he's telling us this walk that he's about to unpack is costly, but it's worth it. And I, I know he's meaning that because he wouldn't tell you all the next steps if it wasn't worth it for him. He's saying, guys, listen, this is a tried and true thing. It, I believe in it so much that I was persecuted and led to prison because I believed in a unified and a missional church. And so Paul's sitting alone, abandoned, beat up in his jail cell, and he's telling you and I something about how costly, but how worth it is to live like this. And guys, that's really challenging for us as a startup that Jesus died for this sort of picture. And then Paul was imprisoned for us to be a unified body and for us to be a missional body. Do you see sort of, he's sort of he's strengthening his argument, if you will, by telling you that he's in prison. He's saying, guys, I'm pursuing this and it got me punished, but it's still worth it. And I want you to live this way. Guys, it's like uh, my grandparents, if you uh, talk to them when they were living, um, they literally use this sentence and maybe your grandparents did. Uh, if you kind of spent time with them, um, you'd hear them share stories about like, I walked uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot to get to work and how hard it was, but it was worth it, right? Did you guys any have grandparents or family that's like that? And they always use it kind of as a guilt trip. You're like, okay, well, I guess I can, you know, hop in my Tesla and go to work today because it's not as hard as walking up the hill both ways. I don't have a Tesla, by the way, but... Still, I, I don't think Paul's again doing this, but he is saying, hey, listen, I did walk uphill both ways, metaphorically, in the snow without shoes to go to work because of the impact that it has on family. And that's what my grandparents would always talk about, how the hard labor was worth it for the family. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm in prison, but it's worth it for the benefit of the family. And guys, that's what's key to us. If we take these six verses seriously, guys, after today, it's gonna take work. There's going to be costs. It's going to be challenging. You might feel imprisoned in your community group or your DNA group. Or maybe you even honestly, just be real, you may feel imprisoned even in your marriage. That you were like forced to be unified with this person that you just don't get along with. Maybe it's happening in this room right now as we speak. There's a fight going out in this church. <laughs> Getting real. No, I was kidding. Uh, maybe it's even happening with your roommate. You're like, man, we signed a one-year lease with this person and they're just irritating me. Like they might even not even be in the city and they've caused it to be harder on you and you're irritated with them. Paul's telling you, hey, this is costly. I'm in prison because of this, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the family. And that's what we see how Paul starts here. Paul here uh, moves on from using this metaphor uh, and he moves on to this metaphor of walking in his next point, he says this. He says, I'm in prison. It's worth it. Listen to me. I'm doing this and it's hard. I want you to do it and it's worth it. He says, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner, or excuse me, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And guys, I find this metaphor of walking to be like really fitting because it suggests to us that if we live this way, 
it's gonna be slow and time-consuming. Guys, what's quicker to do, driving or walking? Well, you're like, we're in Boston, bro. Don't you realize walking's faster? For most of the time, we know that driving or taking the T's a little bit faster, but there wasn't in Paul's day and age, right? It was riding a horse or, you know, a donkey or being a part of a wagon or some sort of escalade like that, right? And I think what Paul's saying is that if we are to walk worthy, it's gonna be slow it's gonna be time consuming. It's gonna require your effort and your focus. It's gonna exhaust you, but listen, it's worth it. Because we're reaching the destination of our calling, he says, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner to which you've been called. So called is like the destination of where you're walking. So where are we walking as a church? We're walking to be unified, to have love and peace with one another. And if we do this right, then what happens in the world around us is that they see people from different ethnicities and backgrounds and even different religions that came to trust in Jesus ultimately, people from different statuses, and they watch us to be unified, watch us have a deep love and a peace with one another, and they're baffled by the witness that you'll have. And then the world will see that we're a part of God's family. And there's something about the way we live that will be enticing. And our friends and neighbors will come to know Christ through our witness. So we're to walk this way. It's going to be slow. It's going to be hard. Being a family, being a church is challenging. You know that person right now. If I say, hey, who's that hard person in community group? Who irks you? Their name pops up right there. Who's that person? Don't say that loud. Don't look at them. But you know who they are. And what God's saying is that I want you to walk slow. It's going to take time. And I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the way I walked with you. God walked slow with us, did he not? If you know my story, my past, my sin, God was gracious, he was patient, he spoke truth, he confronted, he remained. Didn't bail, didn't quit, didn't move. Guys, we're to, we're to walk this way. The calling of unity, the calling of love, the calling of peace, and that's the same calling that God brought us in with himself. Does that make sense? That's what we see here. And I love the imagery of walk because that's so true to the patience we must have with one another. Now, again, we got to go to the context of this, right? This is so key for us as Coa Brighton and the church at Ephesus to understand. Because again, if you remember the context, this church that Paul is writing to is young like us, diverse like us, and urban like us. And specifically in their church, though, there's lots of different backgrounds. And mainly there was this Jewish people and a Gentile people. And because of their individual faith in Jesus, now both collective groups are called to be a family united under one Lord, one faith, and one hope, as verse 6 states. Now, last note before we sort of move out of verse one, and if you're familiar with our church, what we really seek to do is to not know Aaron's thoughts, but God's word. And so that's why we work sort of verse by verse through a passage or through a set of passages. Even if it's like a topical message, we always grab that from the Bible because who cares what Aaron has to say? We wanna know what God has to say for our flourishing and our good, right? So last note before we move on is I want you to notice something about Paul for a second. Think about Paul's context, right? He has been imprisoned unjustly for something that actually wasn't illegal. He was just sharing the gospel. It stirred up a riot in the city. He did not plan to have a riot. He was sharing the gospel. People were leaving their idol-making businesses and they were sort of gathering in the streets talking about Jesus. And the city realized that he was a leader 
of people leaving their jobs away from idolatry and they put him in prison. They didn't like what he was doing. It was not illegal though. Paul had every right to be angry, to be hostile and to be cold towards everybody in his life. He was mistreated. That church that he planted, they didn't really come visit him. They left him there. He was kicked around. He was trapped in this jail. And do you notice how he responds? How's Paul respond? He prays. He worships. He writes a letter of love and care to a church. And then that guy shares the gospel with his prisoners. Like you can't stop Paul. How irritating that would be to be his enemy. But you know what that shows me, church, and what shows you? Friends, listen, you can't let your environment dictate how you live. You can't let your environment dictate how you live. You can walk worthy anywhere, even in prison, even in a terrible job, even around challenging and horrible relationships, marriages, and kids that just yell at you all the time, maybe referring to my own children. We can walk worthy anywhere. What Paul does here is that it strips the excuses away. He's saying, I want you to walk worthy of the calling. And he's not saying, hey, I understand that it's sometimes hard to talk about your faith at work. So you're excused, you know, you're, you're excused there. Or, hey, I know you have, a, kinda, uh, you have a difficult church. and You got some hard people in your community group. So this doesn't really apply to you. He strips all the, all the excuses away. We're called to walk in a way that's worthy of the way that God walked with us. We all we are. Listen, friends, all we are is to be a reflection of his action to us. How he loved us, we love others. How he was patient with us, we're patient with others. And all we are is a reflection of his action. Friends, you can walk worthy anywhere if Paul's even doing it in jail. So let's move on to verse two and three. And we need to see how to walk worthy, right? Of the blessings that God has given to us. All in chapter one through three is the blessings of God. How do we have a relationship with him? And then now he turns to how do we live out as a result of these blessings? And the very first thing he starts with as he teaches how to walk worthy is our relationships with God's family, the local church, Coa Brighton. It's interesting that this is how he starts with. If, if any place in scripture or any place personally, he starts with how to like walk worthy, he says, let's bring the family in. Let's have a conversation. Do you realize that the majority of commands in scripture actually relate to how we relate with one another? Do you realize um, the majority of the sin problems that happen in the scripture are all about how we relate to one another? And there's something that's designed for your good and your healing, the past issues that we've all gone through, it can be helpful when you're connected to a local church that stands on the Bible, that speaks and loves and care. And there's something good that can happen. And that's what Paul wants for this church is to understand the good that comes from spirit indwelt Bible believing people that love Jesus and love one another. He starts in this really relational way. Now, what's interesting is that all of life really is relational, isn't it? If you think about it, everything you do is really relational. We, even if we don't think that we need anybody or we don't need help, we actually do. Every person needs help, care, and support from other people. Guys, even if we turn away from people, right? Our abilities and our views, often our very experiences depend on others in some way, even if we try to avoid it. And we see in Christianity that our worldview is extremely relational. And in this text, while not being a dissertation, right, on relationships, it says a ton about how we should get along 
with one another. Guys, we learned from sociology, not that I am a sociologist, but I did uh, go to school, took a couple courses on sociology, and we learned that positive relationships are based on several factors. And listen to what the Christian worldview does with that. Sociology teaches that we must have, in order to have positive relationships, we must have a shared identity in terms of family or culture, subculture, race, shared experiences, and values held. The more those are aligned, the more positive the relationships are. And what's interesting is that Christian theology offers a really strong basis for positive relationships with others. Because as a Christian, when we trust in Christ, we're unified under his family and his culture and his values. That's why Christianity should be one of the most unifying worldviews. And that's why it is inviting for every person to come, not one group of people or one type of people. But what happens when this gospel message goes out and it does collect, God is a collector God of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And then he puts them in a family together and we're called to live out life when it's really, really hard. And what's the hardest part of relationships? You and me. It's our ego, right? It's our pride. For in our ego, if you think about your ego, uh, lies feelings of superiority, right? Arrogance lies there, right? But also what lies there is insecurities, right? And self-pity lies there. In our ego, we feel envious and we feel greedy and we respond to prejudices, right? And we feel defensive when someone kind of challenges us on something. And we often use our arsenal, right, of retaliation tactics that we built up over the years and we just fire them out at everybody, As William Temple noted, ego is always the root of sin and hurt in relationships. But the solution is found in grasping God's grace. For in his grace, he can prevent the ego from inflating to be too big or the view of self from being too small. By God's grace, we can see ourselves, how he sees us and treat others the way that he treats them. And with that said, we see five steps of grace we need to take in this walk. Our first five steps, if you think about a baby walking and it's really been special, I've watched some of your babies and your family take their first steps, either on Instagram or at our church or something like that. And these are the first five steps that this baby church is going to take. You see it in verse two, with all humility, there's the first step, and gentleness, there's the second step, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Those are the first five steps of grace. And notice though, how the attention goes right to the ego and then it goes to loving relationships. Did you notice that? To have a family that loves each other properly, we have to see ourselves properly in light of God. Do you see how that starts there? If the problem in relationship is ego and pride, we've got to start there. So Paul says, this is how you walk worthy in a family. This is how I walked with others. Humility. Humility. How do we define that word humility? Uh, One pastor said it like this, and I loved the definition he used. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself Less. I love that definition. The word humility focuses on one's view of self in light of what God has done, not in light of what you have done. 
That's what makes us prideful, right? Look at what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my degrees. Look at how I look. Look at how much I know. Why have they not picked me to be the next person in our company with a promotion? Why have I not been selected for that job? I know so much more. I am so much better. Humility is not looking at what you've done. It's looking at what God has done for you when you least deserved it. Humility is what happens, friends, when you compare yourself not to others, but to God's perfection and his graciousness. And when you look upward at God's perfection and graciousness, you know what you see? You see your sin. You see a God that's been patient with you and slow with you and over and over forgiving with you. You don't find yourself to be superior when you compare yourself to God. And what that does is it creates a humility in you, knowing that every gift, every ability, every experience you've had, do you know where that came from? The Bible tells us that every good gift has come from above. So do you realize why you're smart? Why you have a hard work ethic? Why you have the things that you do? Yes, you would do work hard. Yes, you are smart. But God is the one who gifted that to you. So it strips away the boasting, right? Strips away our pride when we think like this. My friends, that's the heart we must have towards one another. See guys, humility really is about how we see or view people or things. It's about how you see or view. It's an awareness that all we are and all we have is from God. A humble person refuses to value themselves above others or assign more importance to themselves than others. Guys, can you just imagine for a moment, think about our church, imagine how much easier relations would be if people knew from the onset of a relationship that another person was seeking out their best interests, that they had no desire to belittle you, they had no desire to promote themselves over you. Could you imagine how much easier relationships would be if we sort of had this thought, had this heart to one another? Guys, listen, humility is essential to our unity and our care at Coa Brighton. Guys, in this room, there is so much money represented there's so much education. We have like every letter in the alphabet represented from what's in your degrees. Guys, we've had so many travel experiences. We have so much. But what happens though, is that the people that we immediately like, we find it easy to get along with because they have a shared education, shared money or shared experiences. And so we immediately like the people that give us the respect that we think we deserved. And you know who irks you? The people that you instinctively dislike are those who treat us less than we think that we're worth. So in other words, what am I saying? Personal vanity is a key factor in all our relationships. If, however, instead of maneuvering for the respect of others, which is pride, or manipulating them to care for us, which is self-pity, we recognize their intrinsic God-given worth, which is humility, and therefore will promote harmony in our church. So how do we sum up this first step? What's humility? Humility is the continual awareness of God, what he's given us, our own sinfulness and frailty, and of the equal value of every person on earth that's made in the image of God. So here's an exercise I want you to do in your community groups this coming week. I want you to ask someone in your group, hey, how do you experience me? How do you experience me? 
When you think about the way that I speak or by the way that I care for you or the, the way I talk about myself, how do you experience me? Not that their opinions weigh on your worth because we don't gather our worth from what other people think. But in a family, sometimes it's, it's good to know, hey, how do you experience me? Do I come across humble to you? Do you feel safe to come and talk to me? Do you feel that when, I'm, when, you're, talk, when, when, when you're talking with me, am I, am I listening to what you have to say? Am I thinking about just the next thing I want to get to or I want to talk about myself? Would you ask someone in your community group this week, how do you experience with me? How do you experience me? Is it humble, close, safe, gentle? What's it like? The second thing we see here in this walk is gentleness. Gentleness. It's an interesting word, right? Gentleness. This does not mean weakness. Keep that in mind. Someone has to be told to be gentle. Why? Because they are strong. God is not telling us to be weak. He's telling us to be meek. Be gentle with the strength that we have. Now, listen, in this room, we've got lots of strong personalities. We've got lots of people with with great degrees, lots of experience, lots of knowledge. I'm not telling you to not be that. If you're opinionated and you have a strong voice, I'm not telling you to be silent with that. What I'm telling you to do is how to navigate it, how to handle it, how to use it as a gift and not a weapon. The last thing I want our church to see is if you are strong opinionated or if you've got lots of convictions that you have to be silent. No, it's the last thing we want at our church. We want to hear your voice. We want to know what's going on. If there's a problem, confront it. Yes, it's the packaging. It's how we do it. Church, listen, gentleness conveys a sensitivity, a desire not to harm. It's a valuing of another person. Do you see that? had nothing to do with your convictions or your truth or you being outspoken. All it is, is a desire to not harm. It's a value in another person. With gentleness, people can be nurtured, right? That's why gentleness comes right on the heel of humility because humility is about seeing others a certain way. Gentleness is how to treat them a certain way. While gentleness is important in all our relationships, including workspace and church I want to talk about one area for a moment where gentleness is most needed in our lives and it's our households. It's our households. Guys, I've, I've spoken to you and I get emotional over this. There's been, there's so much emotional and physical damage that has been done in the households of your own life when you were little. As you grew up, as you experienced your mom and dad or a guardian and in our own personal individual households, that's the context where so much hurt, so much lack of gentleness happens. Children and spouses are crushed by harsh and demeaning language and by verbal abuse so often. Some of you are social workers and by no means have you shared your cases with me, but I can see the heaviness on you. I can see what happens when gentleness is not a value in the home because you're caring for those families now and those children, and they're carrying the hurt and the harm. You've been in those relationships, haven't you? And someone wasn't gentle with you. You felt the weight of that. But what would it look like if you had someone extremely strong and powerful and convictional, but they handled you with gentleness and care? It radically transforms us. Do you know that this is what Jesus calls himself? There's a great book that I've referenced often. It's called Gentle and Lowly. 
Do you realize that the one who's the most supremely powerful in all creation was the most gentle in all creation? He didn't detract from his strength, didn't detract from his opinions, didn't detract from conviction. But what he did, he took his strength and he narrowed it in to be gentle towards you. My friends, we must be like that. Christian homes sometimes are the worst offenders at this. We need to see family members like they were marked on them, fragile and handle with care. Guys, I want you to, when you have conversations with your kids, when you have conversations in your community groups, listen, if you would just view for a moment like their body was sort of on a shipment for a moment, I don't want to detract or objectify anyone, but I want you to think about some shipments of really important things. It says fragile, handle with care. When you're speaking with someone in community group or DNA group, or you've got to confront someone, would you just imagine that on them said fragile handle with care? That's what gentleness is. Not detracting from truth, but delivering a way that's sensitive, that's not seeking to harm them. We must be gentle with others because gentleness nurtures people. It respects them. It allows them to drop their defenses and deal more objectively with issues. Now, again, listen, does gentleness negate the need to speak hard truths to one another? Does it negate it? No, right? It actually implies it. We are to love others enough to tell them the truth, but in a way that doesn't demean them, doesn't detract from them. And you can be firm on it. You can speak boldly on it, but did you do it in a way that demeaned them or detracted from their God-given worth? We've all felt like when that's happened to us, right? So here's maybe a question you could ask yourself. When you're speaking the truth to someone, would you think about this motive question for a moment? When you're speaking to someone, you got to confront someone, you're angry, you're upset, you're irritated, they've hurt you, they devalued you. What do you say? Here's the motive question. Is the conversation you're about to have more about you being right or them being helped? Is it more about them, you being right or them being helped? And that question will guide your motive. Listen, friends, some of us will have hurtful conversations. Some people in this church have maybe hurt you. It's okay to say, you hurt me. I'm upset. I'm angry at the way you treated me. You can absolutely say that to someone in our church. But is your reason to confront them to be in a better place of unity with them? Or is it that's your approach of retaliation? I'm going to confront you because I need to tell you, I'm going to make you feel as bad as you made me feel. Because when we confront, we're, we're trying to draw close to someone. And so what we're trying to do is take this issue and we're trying to wrestle it, break it apart so we can walk through it and be more unified. Does that make sense? That's what gentleness is. And that's gotta be a key part about it. Number three in our third step, patience. Patience, he says. Early church father, John Christostom said this, and I, I like this quote that was really cool. Patience is the exercise of having a largeness of soul <laughs> that can endure any annoyance and difficulty from others over a long period of time. I love that. A largeness of soul. It's a long suffering towards aggravating people. It's the same patience, patience that God in Christ has shown us. Patience literally means long suffering. Patience is that largeness of soul that values other people enough to give them room and time to fail, to learn and develop. Patience is necessary in allowing people the space to mature at God's rate rather than yours. Guys, this is going to be super key for us in community group. 
we're not all in the same place spiritually. We're not all in the same place educationally, economically, racially, politically. We're not. Patience means I walk slowly with you. I always walk slowly with. I walk slowly with you. You're worth the time. I, 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 I want to know about your, your views. How did you get there? Where'd that come from? I want to be patient. I want to be long-suffering. Um, it's interesting. Uh, what I, I notice often from our, our church is that we're very patient with our, our little ones in our church. We're very patient in COA kids. We're very patient with other people's kids. And it's interesting that none of us, I've, I've never heard quite yet, one of our workers yell at a few month old that they wanted to walk. If they did, they wouldn't be working in COA kids at our church anymore. But I never see any of you yell at a child and say, you better walk. What are you doing? We're patient. Why are we patient? Because we know developmentally that they're not at the stage that God has them at to walk. And some of that, we don't treat people like that that are adults in their walk with Jesus. They're not at that place quite yet to be where you want them to be. So they have feelings that don't line up with scripture. They have beliefs that don't line up in scripture. And if we can see them, not belittle them as a child, but if we can see them as just new or young in the faith, we can be patient and walk slowly with them. Just like we wouldn't yell at a child for not being where they should be developmentally, we can't, we can't have that sort of impatience or frustration with someone else in our, in our church in that way. We can speak the truth to them. We can urge them along, but we walk patiently. We long suffer with them. Now guys, if I can just be really honest real quick, we're super honest, like pastor tag off sort of, but be honest with you. Guys, our, our generation, uh, mainly millennials, but sort of if you're in 2030s, which is things everybody in the room, we struggle deeply, badly with patience or suffering. We do not long suffer well. Maybe it's because we saw our parents suffer in a job for like 30 years and talk about how much they hated it. And we're like, bump that. When I get a job, I'm gonna find one that I like. And we're like, forget that. I don't know why, but when challenges and hardships come, our generation, it just causes us to bail all the time. We do it with our jobs, relationships, even where we live. And I'm not saying that you have to stay in all of the hardships and every job that's terrible. I'm not saying that, but it's our knee-jerk reaction. It's our first thing. Hardship's coming, I'm bailing. Challenges in relationship, I'm gone. When we sense hardships and challenges, we view them as obstacles to be avoided rather than on-ramps for God's purposes. We make decisions on what makes us happy rather than what brings God glory and others good. And guys, Paul gets this. That's why he told us he's a prisoner because he followed God's will. He understands hard. But what our generation doesn't see is that on the other side of the grind of life is sometimes often the glory of life. Sometimes we got to stick with the hard and stick with the challenge because out of that, we'll see maybe God's purpose of us being in a hardship in the first place. Guys, just practical application. If we think about patience, guys, that's what we've got to endure in community groups, DNA groups. And some of us, you need to endure in Boston. You need to endure in Boston. I'm not saying you have to, but I want you to count the cost for a moment. There are six. 0.5 million people in our greater Boston area. Only 3% of that number believe that Jesus is Lord, Savior, and hope. 3%. And I want that to be considered in the factor of maybe how long you'll choose to stay in the city. How long will you be patient with this city? I know it's a high cost of living, but it's a high cost when people don't trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Guys, I want us to maybe consider what's it look like to be patient, not just with our church, 
but with our community, with our city, with our neighborhoods, with the finances. Will you be patient with our city? I know it costs a lot. I know it's hard. I know you can't buy a house. I know you're struggling financially, but is it worth it? Is it worth it if your friends and neighbors come to know faith, come to know Christ? Will you be patient? Some of us, we may need, especially members, would you consider making Boston home long-term, being patient with the city that doesn't know him, like God was patient with us when we didn't know him? Last two things, and these are a lot shorter points. Number four, our fourth step is bearing with one another in love. This is similar to patience, but it's a little bit different bearing with one another in love. Where patience is first a mindset, bearing with one another is an act of the will, act of the will. And this type of love is costly to bear with one another. In fact, the word here for love is actually agape, and that's often used with God's type of love. That means it's his unconditional, unrelenting love. And so Paul's telling us, I want you to bear with one another with an unconditional, unrelenting, never stopping, never ending love, the same love that God gave to you on the cross and forever after, I want you to give that type of love. I want you to bear with, guys, I love that. I think that is so like strong language. He's not like, hey guys, hang in there. If, you're, if someone's like, hey, like I need you just to bear with this relationship. That sounds like a grind, doesn't it? It's exactly what this is. Bearing with one another in a church in a marriage with your friends is a grind, but through the grind is a glory that God wants to bring for you. He wants to produce a goodness in you, produce a strength in you. He wants to draw out some sin in your heart in the midst of that grind. And he wants to renew who you are as a person. So guys, I want us to bear with one another. Listen, love is a choice. Love is a choice. To love this way is a choice. The act of caring enough to give attention to people that you don't like the opposite of love, guys, is actually not hate. It's just indifference. It's just giving up on people because they annoy you or bother you. Guys, let us not be a church like that. Everyone who walks in those doors, everyone who comes to your community group, every time we do a community outreach, let's bear with them. Let's grind it out for the glory of something better that's happening. Last thing, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Two things I want to point out here, that term eager, that term maintain. I love that word eager because I feel like that's the type of person that I am. I'm just kind of an eager person, feel a little bit like an energizer bunny all the time. Uh, I'm not all the time like that. I've got some low times and I've got some discouragements in my life at times. I'm not always like that, but also I'm, a, I'm an eager person. I'm an excited person. And I love that he says, I want you to be eager because that speaks to the heart. He's like, I want you to kind of be in the ready position now, I don't know if you guys went and watched the Boston Marathon, but I watched my boy, Bobby G. And I know some others of you have run the marathon before, but that particular day, I was out there watching Bobby G run. Bobby's my neighbor, my good friend. And uh, we were all eager to watch him run. A lot of us in our community group were eager to go out and watch him on the street, be eager in a spot where we could see him. We were eager, we were desirous. And so we were ready. We woke up on time. We got dressed to wear the appropriate clothes. We were out there in the right times. We were watching him on our phone, tracking him as he ran throughout uh, the 26 miles. We were eager it was this longing in our heart for something to happen. Guys, I want you to be like this. I want you to be eager, be, be, be ready, be watching, be prepared to maintain unity. Do you know what that teaches us? That things are always trying to disrupt our unity, right? You gotta be eager for it. You gotta be ready for it because everything's trying to disrupt our unity in the church. Because if you can break down the church, what do we break down? The witness of the gospel. 
everything, your preferences, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, those are all opportunities to destroy our unity and destroy our witness and destroy your good. Everything is. What you wear, what music you like, all of that is just opportunities waiting for us. Because we must be eager, ready, prepared. Guys, that term there is such an urgent term. It has a haste with it, a passion for it. It involves the full effort of a person to give their full involvement of their will and their reason and their attitude and their physical strength. We must be eager to maintain something like unity. And the last thing I want you to notice is maintain. Maintain there. I want you to be eager to maintain. Maintaining implies that you already have this unity, doesn't it? Right? Maintaining it means you already have it, but you got to maintain it. Now, I know we live in Boston, and for some of you, there's something called yards that we have in the South. Uh, that's like a little plot of land and you have some grass on it and trees grow. Some of you have never seen that before, but I just want to let you know what that is. I used to have what, what, what people call yards back in the day, had a yard and I already owned the yard, but I had to maintain the yard. In some sense, that's what Paul's giving us here. We already have unity. We can't create unity. When God brought us into his family by death of, of Jesus, he gave us a unity together, whether we like it or not, like the Brady Bunch. They had the last name Brady. They lived in one house, whether they liked it or not. Whether we like it or not, we already have a unity, but we are called to maintain this unity. Meaning we must steward the unity. We must care for the unity. It's like a seed. It's like a seed, right? You didn't create the seed. If you're going to grow a plant or uh, grow some fruit or vegetables, you don't create the seed. You take what's created, you put it in soil, and then you maintain it. You put water and sun and you give it new soil if it needs to be. When it grows, you put it in a new plot of grass or land. You got to maintain this. Guys, what that teaches us is that we must sacrifice for unity. But I want to flip the coin for a moment. We don't sacrifice unity at all costs. There are some churches, there are some groups that they try to maintain unity and they sacrifice truth. My friends, what's interesting about this is it doesn't say maintain unity at all costs. What's it say? Maintain unity of or in the spirit. Guys, as a church, we will not compromise on truths because they're good for people. They're right for us. They help us. It's God's design for your flourishing and his glory. So we will maintain unity as much as we can, but we will not abandon truth. In fact, why we love truth is because it helps us with unity. So if you're talking with someone and they're bringing up Bible passages and you feel like they're just kind of rubbing up the Bible against you, what they're trying to do is create something good for you. They're trying to help you and care for you. So friend, listen, if you're in this church, you might be like, yeah, I, I love to keep unity and you struggle with truth. You're fine with this whole, yeah, I want some unity in our church too, but it's because you don't like conflict. And so what I wanna urge you tonight is not have a passive or false peacekeeping in our church. If someone has sinned against you and you feel hurt or offended, I want you to seek out, be eager to maintain a unity that your heart doesn't feel anymore. So you need to go to them and talk to them. So guys, let's not have a false peacekeeping. Let's not just maintain unity at all costs. So I won't go talk to that person I'm mad at or frustrated at or hurt by. No, part of maintaining the unity necessitates that you go and talk to them about the hurt. All these virtues mentioned above, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, love and unity were displayed in Christ's own character. And therefore, because we're in him, we're to display his humility, his gentleness, his patience, his bearing with one another, love and his unity. Last thing, we're wrapping this up. Notice how this closes. It says, verse six, verse four, 
There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all. I love that he's over us. He's through us and he's in us. Means God's sovereignly over us. He's working through us and he's in us. Guys, this last two verses, Paul sort of used as a creed. You know how we do some responsive prayers in the church at times? I think Paul had a similar idea here. They would sort of repeat this. We're one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all. Guys, notice that this whole passage, verses one through, uh, one through three, is based in four through six. This is the last thing I really want you to key in on here. All of the unity that we must need comes from the unity that's in the Trinity. All the unity that God's calling us to live is based in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're distinct in role, equal in essence, and realize even God the Son submitted to God the Father, although they were equal. There was a submission to follow the Father's plan, even though the Son is equal to him. And guys, notice that they were completely united. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, completely united, although they were diverse in their roles. And we see that in this passage. Notice how it says that we have one body, one spirit, one hope. That's talking about the Holy Spirit. Notice how it says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's talking about Christ. And it says we have one God, the Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We have a unity in our church. Why? Because there's a unity in the Holy Spirit and God the Father, God the Son, that keeps us together and that shows the world something about God through our unity. So guys, in our church, we want more people from different backgrounds. We want more people that are different than us because we wanna reveal something about God and how he can maintain unity and diversity and it both can be beautiful. So church, how do you need to walk worthy this week? Which one of these five steps are hard for you? Is it gentleness? Is it humility? Is it patience? Who do you need to go and have a conversation with this, this week? Who do you need to go ask for an apology with this week? And see how Christ himself has been these things to you and let that motivate you to go and speak to someone else. Let's pray together. 